0: Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Michaela Benson, a reader in sociology based at Goldsmiths, University of London, and the research lead for a UK and a Changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for UK citizens living in the EU 27. Today's episode is the first of three podcasts that we're going to release that were recorded at the event that we held at the British Library last week. This was an event that really sought to relocate the discussion about Brexit and Britons living in the 27 as well as EU citizens living in the UK back into broader discussions that are ongoing within the social sciences around migration governance regimes, um, migration law and policy. And with this in mind, we brought together an expert panel featuring myself, Nando Sigona, Alira Hard from the Migration Policy Institute, Nadine el from Birkbeck, where she co-directs the Centre for Research on Race and Law, and Omar Khan from the Runnymede Trust, to talk through how we might move forwards in terms of this discussion around migration and citizenship, particularly in light of recent discussions around citizens' rights and Brexit. I'm not going to say very much more about this because you'll hear for yourself exactly what the intention was behind this when Karen O'Reilly, our wonderful professorial research fellow on the project, introduces the session.
1: Okay, so welcome to all you guys, and I'm looking forward to meeting some of you when you ask questions. To give you an idea how things are going to proceed, we're going to give everyone a chance to make an opening statement. They have five minutes maximum, emphasis on the maximum. Chantelle's timekeeping here very strictly. Mm-hmm. This is to give you plenty of time afterwards to ask questions. I'm going to ask the panel to speak. I'm going to go from right to left, so along this way, and then we're going to change the order later, little surprise, they don't know what's coming. <laughs> so the opening positions, opening statements from the panel are going to address the question, how would you characterize the relationship between mobile citizens and migrants? What does the dichotomy do to our understanding of who is a migrant? And then how are UK citizens in the EU positioned in relation to the broader context of migration governance? Over to you, Nadine.
2: Okay, so the first issue that, um, first question that comes to mind for me is the question of categorization in the first instance. Obviously, in the question, the category of mobile citizens and migrants was something that I thought, oh, I'll have to think about these categories now. And of course, when we're looking at immigration law, we're always thinking in terms of categories and legal categories um, in particular. And I find those categories in general in my work to be quite obstructive to actually understanding what's going on. Um, so in my work, I tend to try to question categorization. So the question of what are mobile citizens and what are migrants came to mind. And I think in general, methodologically, there's a sort of problem with migration studies in general which is that we regard migration or movement of people as an aberration rather than the norm or something that we should be sort of focusing our study on. And that sedentary sort of ways of life are actually more sort of the norm. And then some people move, but, you know, most people don't. And I think, you know, taking a broad look at movement, whether it's very short journeys we might do on an everyday basis or sort of longer um, term journeys and just sort of the, the ways in which actually movement is very normal part of social nature of all different kinds, whether it's the movement of our bodies right here in this moment, just as we breathe, or also, you know, taking journeys, etc. And so I kind of think that that's just a broader issue around methodology that I'm interested in. But, and of course, when um, the governance of migration is brought into question, that really, really treats movement as an aberration, particularly the movement of certain people and certain bodies. And that's what I'm interested in. The focus here, of course, is for me, is why is a distinction drawn between the two, mobile citizens and migrants, and what are the effects of drawing that distinction? What are the effects of that dichotomy between different kinds of categories? And of course, this is exactly how immigration law operates it um, produces legal categories and then it divides people into groups on the basis on which um, life chances essentially are allocated. And so the way I understand immigration law is that it exists as a regime of racial power. It categorizes people into groups. It serves to reproduce racial inequality, even though it's actually part of a legal system which, um, in formal terms, is committed to equality and racial equality. Um, so, what are the effects of dividing people into groups? For example, mobile citizens, migrants, refugees, migrants, etc. The division of people into groups, and those with and without rights of entry and stay, makes the latter, those without those rights, vulnerable to premature death. And we can understand racism as vulnerability to premature death according to group differentiated treatment in sort of the tradition of Ruth Wilson Gilmore. So people without rights of entry and stay are rendered vulnerable to premature death and being forced to, as we know, undertake um, treacherous journeys in search of safety. We know that tens of thousands die um, trying to reach um, European shores. Even when they do access Northern countries, um, the absence of a right to stay can mean homelessness, lack of access to healthcare, confinement to a camp or detention center, constant risk of being um, detained and deported. People in these conditions are at risk of being subjected to physical violence, also mental violence. And, of course, death, whether as a result of violent abuse um, or suicide. And it's that legal categorization, essentially, that is producing the illegality, which has these catastrophic effects. So that's the kind of approach that I take in looking at immigration law. In the case of um, European Union citizens, as we know, um, they are in a very high privileged position in terms of the facilitation of their movement, um, not just within the EU, but pretty much anywhere they would wish to travel in the world. And I think in this context, the EU is quite an appropriate example of how um, the ease with which people can move is determined according to where they are within a racial hierarchy. The world order remains structured according to a racial order, which um, in which whiteness comes with a set of privileges. And for me, this dates back to European colonization and transatlantic slavery, which in my response to the second question, I will come back to to kind of spell out a bit more. But essentially, you can see the movement of people being facilitated um, according to to this global racial order, um, which essentially sees poor brown and black people without those sort of hyper privileges in relation to movement. And of course, within the EU, we can see this under the principle of free movement of persons. And of course, I say persons, because actually what the effect of immigration law is, is to or indeed, I think what immigration law shows is that some people are not considered people because of the kinds of vulnerability to disproportional violence um, that they are subjected to. You have to fit within the notion of person to have free movement and, of course, the area of freedom, security and justice, etc. Um, so as we know, those who are privileged enough to um, be able to move actually go by any other name than migrant, whether expat, tourist, ambassador, um, the list is is endless. Those who travel irregularly are, for the most part, people racialized as non-white from poor southern countries with histories of colonization, neoliberal exploitation in the form of debt, land grabbing, and um, the calamitous effects of international monetary fund and World Bank and post-structural adjustment programs, the continuation of uneven trade relations, which is... Um, a legacy of colonialism or rather in a colonialism in a sort of different form but certainly the same racialized structures that we are left with um, both domestically and on global order kind of structured movement of people today and of course we are also seeing um, people's movement affected by the catastrophic effects of military interventions that we see by northern countries so that's my sort of um, initial points i wish to make
1: thank you very much nadine that's um Really got us off to a fantastic start. and been making masses of notes already. Um, we'll move straight on to Alia.
3: Sure. I'll, I'll time myself as well so that I can try to <laughs> stick to it. Well, thank you. I, I think I'll approach these questions more so from a policy perspective, just based on my background and my work that Michaela already alluded to with the report that we did together on the status of UK nationals in the EU after Brexit. So there are lots of things that I could go into, and I, I wrote more notes than I planned to say, just because I wasn't sure what the other panellists would say, um, but I'll just pick and choose a, a couple. So one of the first things I wanted to say is that it is a false dichotomy that we're creating between mobile EU citizens and migrants, and it doesn't reflect the reality of the way free movement is experienced or the legal categories associated with it. So although EU legislation and discourse tries to reinforce a distinction between them, Mobile citizens are migrants in my view, and though they do hold some symbolic power, they are more so in particular a category of non-citizen with the rights to move freely, to work, study or to live subject to some conditions in ways that are inaccessible to most other migrants. But it's worth pointing out that EU citizens aren't the only ones with that preferential access. Uh, So there are free movement isn't always psychologically linked to EU membership. And there are some free movement regimes such as between the Benelux countries or between Ireland and the UK that predated European Union uh, membership. And so within this European landscape, there are hard external international borders and then softer internal, but still international (laughs) borders, uh, largely through the overlapping frameworks of the European Union, the European economic area and the Schengen area. And so this uh, This dichotomous understanding of mobile citizens and migrants isn't only problematic from a legal perspective, but it's also not necessarily useful in terms of the integration needs of newcomers (coughs) and how they're perceived by society. So like many other migrants, mobile citizens may still arrive with a low host country language proficiency or limited awareness of how to navigate and access services. And importantly, this distinction can be out of sync with how local communities experience immigration. So the concept of mobile citizen seems to have limited traction among the general public. And at least within the British press, they're largely referred to as EU citizens or EU migrants or citizens of a particular member state. And indeed, five years ago, a number of member states were pushing for integration funding to be available for EU migrants. They were lobbying the commission that EU citizens need to be integrated as well. But the commission argued that EU citizens are already integrated because they are EU citizens. I think another point that I wanted to make was just that mobile citizens experience and practice free movement in a plurality of ways. So we know that mobile citizens are a subcategory of migrant, but even within that subcategory, there's huge diversity, both in terms of the personal characteristics of individual movers, their motivations for moving, and their migration trajectories. So whether they move once and settle permanently, whether they engage in frequent, circular, seasonal migration, or continuous onward migration. And when we're talking about mobile citizens, it includes a spectrum of mobilities over time. And this might be something we can get into later about whether we're only using this term to refer to people who are exercising mobility right now or if we're using it to refer to anyone who's ever experienced mobility. And I think that has really huge implications in terms of the Brexit withdrawal agreement, which only covers those who are are exercising free movement at the time of Brexit. One last point before I run out of time is just that we need more nuanced data collection in order to better understand how mobile citizens experience and practice migration or free movement and therefore what they stand to lose after Brexit. The organization British and Europe have done a great job collecting case studies on UK nationals in the EU27 and there's a lot of really rich details on individual and family migration experiences but these qualitative accounts were necessary because there are such serious gaps in the data. And as my colleague just said, the statistics around migration take this sedentary bias, and they also fail to distinguish between third country nationals who are family members and therefore are entitled to a totally different set of rights uh, than third country nationals who are not family members. And we also end up referring to people as mobile citizens when that doesn't distinguish whether they're permanent residents or maybe even entitled to citizenship. and again, have a totally different set of rights. I have 20 seconds left. So I'll <laughs> just say um, in terms of the Brexit debate, which is how I'm largely approaching this, our research on the British population in Germany found that you know 37% of British immigrants who lived there had been there for over 25 years. So we're talking about them as mobile citizens, but this is you know a very settled population. And I think that's true in a number of other uh, member states as well. And so, maybe I'll just leave it there, but just to echo that we have very limited data as it stands right now on these full migration trajectories, particularly when it comes to things like circular migration, and that means we don't really know how populations will be affected in the future.
1: Thank you very much, Aliyah. Thank
4: you. Yeah, uh, I'm kind of glad I've gone third because now I can uh, learn from and build on some of the points that have been made already. Yeah, I think one of the things, just thinking about what was just said, in British public and policymaker discourse, I don't think the term mobile citizens was much used. I think the British policymaking community and the British public generally saw people as EU migrants, so it didn't necessarily make the sort of distinction. It was more EU citizens, and of course, in Brussels and, and European institutions uh, saw things that way. And one of the things that I've kind of come to realize is that uh, thinking about Integration in particular, in, in a way, the claim of mobile citizens was a multicultural claim because it was claiming that you could have the rights of citizenship, but you could still maintain a multicultural identity, i.e. the identity of different countries. So in a way, uh, we don't tend to think of it that way. But what we was trying to be claimed there was, I think... Uh, although I'm not sure that's how Europeans would always see it, was that, you know, this was a a way of maintaining one's cultural or nationality background while still being able to affirm the rights of citizenship, which is, I think, an ideal, uh, whether or not you agree with European institutions is one that uh, we should continue to affirm. But I wanted to talk briefly about um, our experience of doing some work on BME, Black and Minority Ethnic, British uh, focus groups that we did, uh, just before the referendum, because I think it, uh, shed some light on some of these questions in terms of who was a mobile citizen, because of course, UK citizens were also mobile citizens in the sense of the, the sorts of examples Alia has given. And one of the questions I asked the Caribbean focus groups that we ran was, you know, would you consider uh, moving to Spain or to Germany for a job? And there was almost universal laughter in the group. Uh, This was like, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that they were opposed to it. It was just the thought had literally never crossed their mind. Um, I I think most black Caribbean people living in Britain would not consider moving even to uh, Spain or France, much less moving to say Poland or Hungary, where the, of course, the president there has said that he doesn't want Uh, black people living there. So obviously he doesn't want black British people uh, living there. So it's obviously a constraint on their freedom of movement. And we were asking those questions in part to find out attitudes towards the referendum. Uh, And we know that one in four black people and one in three Asian people did vote to leave the European Union. And I think some of the reasons, uh, you know, uh, have been uh, hinted at in the press, for example, the sort of concerns of differential uh, rights for different kinds of migrants. And the way that came out though was not necessarily, and I think it's an important one in terms terms of thinking post-Brexit, if that's if that's where we're going, it looks like we're still going there. What kinds of differential rights of citizenship do people have once we're no longer members? Do EU and non-EU uh, citizens have differential <coughs> access to, for example, uh, access to welfare or access to uh, benefits, etc.? Um, and I don't think that the claim was, as it is often amongst uh, brexiteers generally that people have too much access to rights it was why do they have access to rights that when we came we didn't get so that's the kind of narrative you hear so they're not necessarily arguing that migrants shouldn't have access to benefits. They're saying it's not fair that they do and we don't. So that the unfairness is quite of a, is a sort of the relative unfairness between migrants as opposed to the idea that migrants should get access to rights at all, I mean, to benefits at all. And I actually think that's an interesting way of moving forward, which is arguably to dissociate citizenship, strictly speaking, with access to rights, uh, including voting rights, that after one or two years, of being resident in a country, you may want to give everyone with one or two years residency access to benefits and voting, regardless of their citizenship. And conversely, those who've lived overseas for more than one or two years should not have those rights in their countries of birth. That's a different way of trying to think about uh, integration as well. And I think, so so I don't think that um, mobile citizens, uh, that, that UK black and minority ethnic people were necessarily mobile citizens to Europe. But I think, and and we also did a brief piece of work with sort of professionals in the city. Uh, and you may know this, but in in the city, it's often one way to advance your career more quickly is to take a, a posting overseas. And we asked some sort of high-level professionals, Asians and black people in the city, if you would take a job in Poland. And generally speaking, they wouldn't. And it was not just because of the thoughts about uh, the attitudes in those countries, but where their kids would go to school. They, were, they would say things like, how could my son or my daughter go to primary school in, in Warsaw as the only black child? in that school. But I think conversely, we actually, some of the debate on, on EU is, is also wrongly racialized. So around 11% of people born in Europe living in the UK are not white. Um, and so a disproportionately large number of black and Asian people have moved to uh, the UK from European countries. We did some research on Francophone Cameroonians, people born in Cameroon who went to France, got French citizenship, and then came here. And actually, I think um, we have data on the ethnic population of French citizens in Britain because it's collected in the census, and it's actually quite high, 15% plus. So it does appear to me that actually BME, Black and Minority Ethnic European migrants did avail of mobility to come to the UK, in part because they felt the UK was a less racist society. I'm not saying it's, it's perfect, but I mean, we definitely have had that kind of uh, narrative uh, expressed to us. And I think it's interesting what will happen to some of those migrants, because they're not really in the debate about EU citizens, uh, whether it's the, the sort of uh, groups that represent EU nationals. Uh, it tends to be professional or better off European uh, Union and tends to be those from Western Europe rather than those from Eastern Europe. So I think it's it'll be an interesting uh, experience. And I think I'll close with that, which is I sort of agree with Alia, too, that I mean, mobile citizens are a lot of them are people who have even within the EU are those that have more likely to be white and more likely to be better off. And I think it's also the case that people from other countries have had mobility to do that. And what's kind of was unique about European Union membership was that it was extended beyond that. And so I think if we think how we extend that, even without necessarily having the apparatus of the European Union, that would still be, I think, a good thing to aim for. So extending the ability of people to be mobile... Uh, extending the ability of of having a multicultural sense of people's identities while still affirming their rights is, I think, the thing we should try to achieve and that we should ensure that people from what uh, Nadine says uh, of the global south have equal rights as those from the global north.
1: Thank you very much. Fantastic. Straight on to Nando. Uh,
5: It's quite interesting to come up towards the end because uh, obviously a lot of the team already emerged in various ways. What I'm trying to do maybe is um, slightly to reframe the key things. I mean, first, I've probably talked about mobile citizens and immigrants rather than migrants. I'll explain why. And the point is, is what's the line? I mean, what is the nature of the line that divides between these categories? So it's linked to the categorization. And the line is very much the line, the border of the polity. So I think you cannot talk of citizens versus migrants or versus immigrants without going back to where the European, the free movement idea come from. And that's very much embodied and embedded in the, in the idea of a EU citizenship has a project, political project. Mm. And this is partly answer some of the tension, for example, if you look at the committee groups and various lobbyist group that think about, oh, we want to have a freedom movement after Brexit. Uh, we may certainly have negotiated a, a regime of movement, which is potentially um, more uh, open, partly because of the economic power of the country involved. Let's put this way. In a sense, you are negotiating with Germany is different than negotiating with Jamaica in terms of diplomatic power involved, but it's not the same thing. So it will be a, a regime of movement, which is not to the the EU citizenship. And obviously, as any polity is defined by both lines of inclusion, a politics of inclusion, but also a politics of exclusion, which is towards the external part, but also towards the internal. By this, I mean, that obviously, and this is the point that's been made very much before, is that when we talk about European citizen well, the European project doesn't mean that is a panacea against racism, against uh, exclusion. It's got its own lines of demarcation that are very much emerging, even when you carry out the research. So for example, just to give an example, when we, we put out a number of calls for our Eurochildren project to talk to people about their experience. And, uh, and many people came forward, probably has been the project in my career which I had less problem in recruiting participants. But they end up to be all Swedish, German and French and Belgian and uh, Dutch. Uh, so it was very easy to do that number of interviews. But then when you look instead of, for example, wanting to talk with uh, Romanian Roma, or with people with uh, in low income job or with a lower level of education or people that came with the accession countries, then we found much more difficult to access and we had to develop different strategies of recruitment, trying to for other channels. And this is very much, in a way, how the different politics of the servingness of the hierarchization of within the European project was translated into very practical issues about how do I carry out my research essentially. And this is also actually a linked to the idea how we need to be aware both as a researcher but of these lines of uh, demarcation and issues of voice is very interesting. As a, a reader of The Guardian, as I guess a number of people in this room, I've always uh, very much uh, affected and impacted as a European national myself by the story that were coming out in media. Then you start to look at it with a bit of distance and you see what kind of story are coming out in The Guardian? What kind of story move me as a, a European national? Are the stories about the The French or the Belgian academic having to move to Sweden. Uh, The the stories of the Dutch uh, lady that has been for 30 years, has got kids. and Have you ever seen a story in the garden about a a Romanian Roma and how Brexit is going to jeopardize the project? Mm. So there is an issue about, as a researcher, we need to be aware of those lines. And in a sense, this is I think where our contribution is also placed vis-a-vis other other sort of way of storytelling around the Brexit and, and its effect. But it's also interesting because it's not just any issue of, um, there is an issue about the, the voice we haven't heard. In a sense, you could say that uh, the uh, the politics of the servingness is filtered via what is news, newsworthy or not. But it's also the fact that the people were not coming forward. So in a sense, it's our self perception of being deserving of to speak. So it's that two dynamics that we need to be able to unpack much more closely. And final point I want to make is about the focus of the project is on families and children. The project is called uh, Euro Children. And you have seen the leaflet on some of the chairs. We didn't bring them enough, enough of them. I think what is interesting in in there is the idea that uh, political project going back to the initial point about the European project as a political project leave a legacy so there is no longer the the political project what happened to the orphan of a political project and in a way of capturing the orphan the best way for us was to look at the children of the European families living in Britain so what's happened to those children in terms of how they perceive themselves once there is no longer that binding sort of narrative about being European. And this is something we'll to be talking a bit later. In a sense, it's also a way of filtering. The, and why we think that the children are among the most vulnerable is because basically we have a problem with the legacy of the European project. We would like to have a clear cut Brexit in which we are out and then you end up having a few hundred thousand children instead that they represent physically the project that will continue for the next generation. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Nicola? What a privilege to come
6: last after, after. I, th- I think I can probably leave now and go home. Um, <laughs> um, <been> <laughs> so I thought that what I would do is, is talk a little bit about our projects and about working with UK citizens who live in, in the EU 27 and more precisely make a case for recognising that British people migrate too. Um, This has been a bit of a life project for Karen and I over the last, in Karen's case, 25 years, and in my case, 15 years, to actually get people to recognise that the other side of the British migration story is the British emigration story. And this is something that we think really has not been paid attention to historically and with with detrimental consequences, actually, for how we understand migration in this country. Now, in respect, I think that Brexit really does shine a light on this. We have a situation where, depending on which statistics you choose to believe or depending on which statistics you believe are reliable, we have at least 900,000 British citizens who hold only British citizenship, this is a really important distinction, living in other EU member states, so living in the EU 27. And there are so many problems with these statistics. Um, Karen has written about this um, most recently. Um, for the conversation. But basically, those problems that um, Nadine and Aliyah were talking about around the assumptions and the sedentarist bias feed also into our understandings of how many British people are impacted by Brexit, particularly British people who live elsewhere in the EU 27, because it only counts people who are usually resident. And as we know, particularly within that mobile British population, people who regularly move around, the people who are, and I say as we know, I'm not sure that we do know this, but our assumption is that it's the people who are most likely to be um, quite precarious, who are moving around a lot within Europe, as well as some very, very privileged people who, who might be exercising that free movement at the top end. Of course, Uh, The EU referendum outcome does have quite important impacts for UK citizens who've made their homes and lives in the EU 27. Simply put, these people are going to be losing their EU citizenship and with it the rights that they had previously been able to take for granted. So there was a lot of taking for granted going on there. But I think that quite a lot of the effort that the numbers are connected to as well, there's been this constant driving down of numbers of British people who live abroad in the media representation, in political discussion, makes us think that there will be a very limited impact on these populations. That's the first thing to point out. Where actually, I think that um, the impacts could be quite profound. Now, I'm not sure that I'm making myself entirely clear. I completely recognise the characterisation of British populations abroad who are majority white British to our knowledge and understanding. And I say that also knowing that we do not really actually have the statistics that would allow us to ultimately conclude that. Um, and chantelle has been doing some excellent work working with British people of colour who've moved elsewhere in the European Union about their experiences of Brexit and how those link more generally to processes of racialisation back in the UK, but also in the countries where they've settled. So we do know that those British populations are generally relatively privileged vis-a-vis other migrant populations in the countries they've settled when I say that, I recognise the relative privilege as a structural condition. But within that, we know that there are people who are likely to be more vulnerable. And I I will just give you a couple of examples. There are young people who have been brought up in European Union countries who may have gone through the education systems there, who may be in a situation where levels of unemployment among young people are incredibly high. They may very, very well find themselves in circumstances where they don't meet the criteria to remain and yet their qualifications may not be easily translatable into what they bring back to the UK. There are people who are in relationships with third country nationals who might find themselves in a position where, you know, whereas in the case of dual national families, there are often situations which mean that their access to naturalisation is much easier. This might not be the case for people who are in relationships with third country nationals. And within a labour market, within the changing economy, that we're experiencing within Europe. There are lots of people who are on very, very short term contracts, who therefore also don't find themselves eligible for the modes of integration through uh, visas, through naturalisation regimes, precisely because there is an expectation within those labour markets that they're highly mobile. So I will leave my initial intervention just there. <laughs>
1: wonderful. I can't believe how much we've had in the space of just half an hour. That's just absolutely phenomenal. I'm going to open it out to all of you. I'm very happy to take comments as well as questions. Bear in mind, we just have 10 minutes, so to try to be fair, don't talk for five minutes yourselves. <laughs> um, so while you wait, I'm just going to make a few sound bites that I wrote down while I was listening. So I just wanted to say that... Um, Fantastic that Nadine started off by questioning the sedentary bias of research and assumptions about migration, et cetera, and especially categorizations, because I, I really get annoyed about categorizations and the assumptions. Ali, for drawing attention to the diversity of EU migration... <sighs> Omar for giving us this marvellous insight about British and minority ethnic groups and their attitudes to freedom of movement. Nando for making us think about intergenerational aspects and families. And Mikla for again drawing attention to the diversity of British emigration. So that's just you know absolutely few, very few quick sound bites. So please. Okay. Could you just start by just reminding us who you are? Hi, so my
3: name's Helena, and um my question—I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to articulate it very clearly—but it's just something I'm thinking. So your contributions were all really interesting. I was just wondering, in your research, do you find, define what it means to be European, and do you think that our current, the most common understanding now of what European means, which is being EU only, is having a negative impact on, um, especially like racism towards other Europeans that are not EU citizens, and uh, so something kind of like
7: along those lines, and. Just wondering, because I hear a lot in the media and from people as well, we're leaving Europe. We're not leaving Europe, we're leaving the EU. And that has a big impact on other Europeans
1: consider themselves to be Europeans, but a lot of people don't consider their country to be in Europe. So like Turkey, for example. That's a really good point. Anyone want to respond to that? Maybe should we take a few?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very good question. And I think that the category of European is a very exclusionary category, because as you say, there are people who could be understood to be, say, geographically European, but in terms of um, legally and in terms of identity, etc., they're not classed as European. As we know, of course, during the Leave campaign, there were lots of horrific things said about Turkey and the likelihood of Turkey joining to kind of uh, really play on uh, the extreme levels of Islamophobia that are pervasive in Britain today. But I think that one sort of small insight into what, how European has been defined in the past is that actually when France was first part of the European Economic Community, then Algeria was also officially part of the European Economic Community because it was a colony of France, but free movement did not extend to Algeria. So already you can see in the very origins of the European political space is this highly exclusion mm-hmm. exclusionary, racialized treatment of non-white people, but it is also I think, therefore, quite unsurprising today to see what an exclusionary and violent space Europe is, um, because it is essentially the product of decolonization or the independence movement. Whilst countries were gaining their independence and European colonial powers are losing their colonies, they were moving towards European integration. So they were reinforcing their strengths, their strength on the global, in the global space at the time when they were losing power and influence in other areas. That's and I think that really. Teaches us a lot about why Europe today is such a protectionist um, space, and the way in which it works towards the um, exclusion and impoverishment and destabilization of pretty much everywhere outside of what is officially understood to be European.
1: Thank you, um, Omar and yeah. Mikla both want to. Yeah, well, I
4: did a little work um, in 2013, and 2014 on both the landlord checks and on um, homelessness, and I mean the fact that the UK was deporting. It wasn't deporting; it was encouraging people to leave uh, who were homeless in, in the run up to the 2012 Olympics, so that you know London looked prettier. One in one of these missions, uh, they, they worked with the Romanian embassy and the Romanian police to clear Roma specifically. And the Romanian embassy's press release at the time said people who happened to hold Romanian passports. So they were clearly, and, and the, the London Met and the Home Office's press release also claimed that because they were working with Romanian speaking people, that there was no question to answer here. And it turned out the Romanian speaking people they were working with were the Romanian police who had come over to help with the eviction. So even if you're European, national, you did not have the full rights. Never mind of free movement, but even being able to stay here without being subject to deportation. It wasn't technically deportation because they were in to get on a flight. And I think the second case is the landlord checks, which, you know, it's not so much that discrimination happens when you get let, let to, it's that they don't even consider you because they've got 15 other people. And if you're a Mozambican, born in Mozambique, but you have a Portuguese uh, nationality, or if you were born in Cameroon and have French citizenship, you're going to be less likely to be able to have those rights. So I think even within EU uh, you know, rights, you already have racialization, never mind the, the other the other countries, which sort of proves uh, what, what my panelists said in the first round.
1: Thank you very much. Nicola?
6: Yeah, I think I just wanted to build on those two points about the exclusionary dimensions of this idea of being European as well, to say that, Within our project, at least, we are talking to people about what they think it means to be European. And it's very interesting to see who thinks they're European and who doesn't. And of course, to a certain degree, that does map onto some of the leave and remain distinctions that people are drawing. But I treat this with a little bit of scepticism as well, much as you would treat the, the question of what it means to be British and who's allowed to be British. Who's actually allowed to be European? And what does claiming that identity do within this broader context where we know that certain people are not allowed access to those labels, are not allowed to call themselves European, as much as we also know that some people are called to account for
1: whether they are really British. I'm going to have to move on to the next question, I'm afraid. Sorry, (laughs) otherwise we would never get to coffee and let this other person... Do we just have one other person waiting for... So So I'll I'll take all the questions now and then get feedback all (laughs) together.
7: Hi, my name is uh, Helen McCarthy. I'm a doctoral student at Middlesex University. I had a question for Omar,
2: particularly when you were talking about your focus group with your British BME participants who said they would never consider moving to Europe. I just you kind of touched on it a bit later in your discussion, but I wondered how much that is linked to class and and whether you could sort of talk a bit more about you know is there sort of statistics that really show you know a kind of underrepresentation of BME Brits in Europe or you know what's the sort of linkage there yeah.
8: okay. Um, Hi, Alexandra Bulat, PhD student at University College London and also an activist with the three million. Uh, And I wanted just to comment on the points by Omar and also Nanda regarding the difficulty to recruit East European uh, people and also uh, that citizens rights organizations include more West European voices Mm. than East European ones. I couldn't agree more and actually struggle so much to recruit people into uh, the three million and also other uh, migrant rights organizations to actually campaign uh, and lobby East European uh, nations in the European Parliament because I do some lobbying on, on Romania, in, in Romanian with Romanian contacts and I end up recruiting even more people from from Western European countries so I was wondering what are your thoughts, why why is that and actually I have quite a few people from Romania as well uh, because I, tend, I speak Romanian and also I speak a bit of Polish saying that we just don't, don't care, we're not really involved in politics whereas the people from France and Germany tend to follow more politics and tend to be involved more so I was wondering what's the solution to that to involve more European voices.
1: Thank you. Thank you for your question.
7: Hi, my name is Laura. I'm um, from the Law Centres Network and um, I wanted to make a comment about um, we have worked through, uh, we had a two-year EU-funded project on um, EU rights and we engaged with a lot of people who are the non, maybe the non-traditional image of the EU national, not middle class, not always white, not um the more privileged nationals, remain in Roma, uh, people who have derivative rights of people who are carers or casual laborers, a lot of people in precarious work. And I think from our experience, what really helps to engage with these groups, which tend to be more reluctant at the beginning to engage with, is um, an approach that was very much tailored in the language of origin because of the language barriers. And... Um, I think I struggle with um, events aimed at nationals, which are in English only and only for everyone, um, rather than tailored at in people identifying with that sort of. identity. I think people are more um, suspicious of authorities coming from Central Eastern Europe or just generally people who've had the experience of oppression in whatever form or other. So I, we had to make sure that people know that it's not the authorities. We're not going to um, give their names. Just signing participation forms was a struggle. Mm-hmm. People wouldn't want to their signature down and write the nationality and how many years they've been in the country, understandably, perhaps. Um, So having... Um, used community champions, people trusted intermediaries who are from those um, communities um, to sort of link um, organizations on the ground working to give information sessions on people's rights. So practical information as well. The fact that it wasn't just political participation and things that people's, they couldn't connect their personal lives very well to. Okay.
1: Can we stop there? Thank you very much. That's fantastic. Thank you. It would be wonderful to talk much more to all you guys because you've obviously got some fascinating insights yourselves.
5: Can I just ask you to respond fairly briefly? I'm sorry to do this, but... But the point of the representation, I think it's, it's really important. But just think about the, the debate for when there was the EU enlargement and the, the arrival, the invasion we were expecting of Eastern Europeans. I mean, one thing that people will tell you that uh, for them is not new what they are witnessing. I mean, the sense of, uh, partly the sense of, of uh, the impact of Brexit. that We always ask about, how do you feel about Brexit? What make you, How do we describe Brexit? It's very much linked to what was your social position in the social hierarchy, okay? If you are, again, just to give the Romanian, and Roma, but there are other categories, the Polish. They've been on the front page of the daily mail for ages. I mean, for them there is nothing new about. They've, not, in a sense, you can almost argue they've never been European citizen. In the sense that we would now attribute as a kind of a special status that give you advantages. And this is partly why they don't feel like they got a way of articulating their position. And if you can look at this also from a different angle, look at uh, the criteria for now for the settled status and the temporary status. There are groups of the population that don't fit in. They have, uh, I mean, we have done interviews with people saying, I just need to wait and see what's going to happen here because yeah, I can do anything. I just, I'm waiting to see if hopefully something can. So it's quite interesting to see that I exclu- structural exclusion, but there is also narrative exclusion.
4: So. Thank you. I think that these the conversation here has already uh, advanced a bit how you uh, engage w- with some of these communities. But one of the things as that I've reflected on is, you know, we're we've been founded in 1968 and we self-describe as a race equality organization. But I don't think that a lot of EU migrants see us as a sort of advocacy group for them because they don't necessarily see it as a the xenophobia that they experience. They don't always see it as racism if they're white. And it, it is an issue that I think is quite interesting how we can Use also the opportunity to build better solidarity, not just between Eastern and Western European people, who are now all migrants, but across all migrants and all all, all minority people. But I think there there's some work to be done there because it, there is racism within within um, all communities. Um, but specifically on the point on on data collection, well, in most European countries, as you know, it's illegal. Not not they don't just not collect it. It's it's formally. Uh, unconstitutional to collect data on ethnicity. So of course, not only do they not know the ethnicity of their own populations, they don't know the ethnicity of any migrants who live in those countries. But I don't think it's just class. It certainly is partly class. I mean, I was asking a question a little bit around retiring to Spain and sort of the traditional kind of stereotypes you have about what British people do when they move to Europe. But I agree, it is more diverse than that. And I think that's why the laughter came in, because it was in part a laughter, at, of course, I'm not going to, do I don't have enough money to buy my first home, much less a retirement home in the Costa del Sol. So, I think it is partly class. But as I said, we also interviewed people about taking a job, you know, BP executives taking jobs. And, you know, there was reservation there as well. So, I think freedom of movement. And, and there was awareness of what politicians in Eastern Europe were saying, uh, you know. And I think it's that is filtering down. I, I don't want to keep talking about it, but yeah, I, I do want to say though there are there are a large number of, of minorities who do who do move. I mean, I've, I've met them. I have two former colleagues who work in Brussels. I wrote I wrote them reference letters, so I'm aware that there are people who who are working in in Europe, in particular in, in cities like Berlin, the, the larger kind of more cosmopolitan cities where you see migrants generally. One other thing, sorry, I wanted to say was. I think there is something about language here, right which is that English is spoken around the world by people regardless of education almost as a second language in Britain to learn a second language it's basically been cut from all public schools uh, sort of state funded schools so if you speak French or German or Spanish well enough to migrate, you are an elite because that, that, that's the reality of how how appallingly bad our secondary education is on language and how appallingly like it's being cut from our universities as well so you know there is also you have to refer reflect on the fact that Britain's Englishness, English-speakingness, which I think the press and the politicians don't always understand, makes us a target of migrants from around the world in a way that no other, only other English-speaking countries can match, really, because of it, it opens up the class dimension of migrants in a way, regardless of the governance uh, regime, which is still punitive here as well as everywhere else.
3: I think that's really interesting. Your point on on language in particular, living in Brussels, English is basically the third official language of the city. So there are lots of people there who don't speak uh, either French or Flemish. That's also a way to sort of reimpose barriers to integration, Mm because if you don't speak those languages, you're always sort of on the margins of the, the local community. But I wanted to go back to, I think it was your point earlier about this European versus EU identity. So it may shock you, but I'm actually a British national uh, living in Brussels, so living in the EU 27. My accent is because I was raised in Bermuda, uh, which leads me to my second point, that there are actually a lot of EU citizens who don't live in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. They're part of the Outremer in France, part of the UK overseas territory citizens like me. And also this question that we're having about what it means to be European, which I think is the third question we'll, we'll touch on later mm-hmm. today. It's not unique to Europe. I mean, these same discussions, what does it mean to be African, for a white African, for an Indian African? But these questions I think are, are much broader. So we could, I think we should have them, but it's important to situate that within a global context mm-hmm.
1: as opposed to just focusing on Europe. Thank you very much. Yes, wow. So um, I think definite round of applause for these guys. Yeah.
6: Thank you for listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. If you've enjoyed what we've been talking about today and want to find out more, check out our website www.brexitbritsabroad.com or you can follow us on social media via Twitter at BrexPatsEU and on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And I'll speak to you again soon.